Let's open our Bibles to Hosea. We shouldn't have very much problem getting through the first five chapters because chapter three is only five verses long. And um, it is repetitive, what we're going to be reading here. The name Hosea and Joshua and Jesus are all derived from the same Hebrew root word. Uh, The word Hosea actually means salvation. Joshua and Jesus include the additional idea as Yahweh is our Savior. So all three of these names uh, tie tie together. Uh, Beginning with Hosea, we're going to be ending up with Malachi. These are 12 short prophecies designated as the minor prophets. So what we're diving into right now, we're just leaving the major prophets of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and we're entering into um, 12 of the minor prophets. Now, they're minor in the sense that they're just shorter books, not because they are less significant than Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel. It's just that they're shorter. Therefore, they're called the minor prophets versus um, here the major prophets. We're actually not in a chronological order. As we start chapter 1 here, we're going back before the time of the writing of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And we're actually dealing with the ten northern tribes. Um, In other words, the kingdom after Solomon was divided and uh, Jeroboam revolted and there were 19 or 20 kings that reigned in what we call the northern kingdom. And sometimes the northern kingdom is referred to as Ephraim. And the only reason it's referred to as Ephraim is it was the largest of the tribes. Sometimes it's um, referred to as Israel, but so is the southern tribe. Um, The message here by Hosea to the people is... One of um, just mourning and grieving as a husband would grieve for a wife who was simply unfaithful. And of all the kings, starting with Jeroboam, they never had one good king. I keep forgetting if it was 19 or 20. I get the two mixed up. But it says the same thing about all 19 of them. They did evil in the sight of the Lord after their sins of their father Jeroboam. Every single one of them. So now he has to address this nation that does not have a good king. And they're always going the other direction. And in the southern kingdom during this time, um, we have what was called Judah. There were two tribes, uh, Benjamin and Judah. And... um, of the 19 or 20 kings that they had, they had about eight or nine that were actually good kings, like Josiah and um, Hezekiah. So there was a handful of good kings in the south. And as a result, when God judged them during Nebuchadnezzar's time, that's the book of Daniel, when God judged them, it was just for 70 years, and they came back into the land. The difference here is when we get through the book of Hosea, in 710 B.C., 
They were taken into captivity and um, dispersed, and uh, they never returned. The Assyrians left some of them back in the land, and they intermarried with some of the people that were from the Ten Lost Tribes, which, by the way, aren't lost at all. God knows exactly where they are. And they came to be known what we call Samaritans. And whenever you read about a Samaritan in the New Testament, Jesus is always speaking something good about Samaritans, like the good Samaritan. (laughs) Uh, In contrast to the Pharisees, that um, he, he doesn't have anything really good to say. Hosea is going to be the last prophet to speak to the northern kingdom before they fall to the Assyrians. So with that much of a background, we're going back before the book of Daniel. And actually, um, Hosea is going to be the last prophet to try to speak to them. And it dates its force here as you look at um, verse 1. We're actually going to look at the first nine verses here. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. So this states it. While Hosea is king Uh, the prophet speaking to the northern ten tribes, we have Hezekiah uh, down, it's called Judah in the south, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. All right, so that sort of sets the tone. Um, The background here is that Hosea um, is going to marry a prostitute who is going to have three kids. And I'll come back. We'll read the first nine verses. There's meaning in all of this because the Lord is simply painting a picture of what he's going through with his people who are falling away. Matter of fact, they never came back. They never had a a king that led them in the ways of the Lord. So we read in verse 2, And the Lord began to speak by Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. And now he begins to make the picture, the dialogue, the reason. For the land has committed great harlotry. So we have physical adultery. He's painting a picture because his people, called by his name, are committing spiritual adultery. So he's just laying out this picture. For the land has committed great harlotry. By departing from the Lord. So he went and he took Gomar, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now here Israel is a reference to the ten northern tribes. And it will come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said, call her name Lorahama, which means I will no longer have mercy on the house of 
Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. So when we read that, now we have to go back and think of the two tribes um, uh, in the south. Uh, We'll save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now, when she weaned Lorahamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Amai, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. All right, let's just look at what we have here. He's told to go out and marry a harlot who already has a child. Children that are born in the home, there were three, two boys, one girl. Their name, plural, their names, in their meaning tell the whole story. And there's a larger meaning and message for the nation of Israel. Jezreel was the oldest. His name means God will scatter and God will avenge. That's the meaning of the name of Jezreel. The reference God told Hosea was directly to the house of Jehu. Now, although Jehu had carried out God's instructions to destroy the house of Ahab, he had done it with hatred, great personal vengeance. For this God says, I'll judge, I'll scatter Israel, but there will be mercy in my judgment. That was the first child. The second child was called Lorahama, which means that she never knew a pitiful, a father that showed pity. It was not that she was an orphan, but she did not know who her, actually who her father was because um, Gomer was a, was a harlot. Um, what a scandal in the house of uh, Hosea. God is saying through the, these circumstances to the people, the northern kingdom has gone out into idolatry and you will not know my pity for I'm not your father. The third child was Loamiah, which means not my people. If you put this in the singular, it would need, it would simply mean not my child. They had gotten that far away from the Lord. And as a result, the Lord doesn't know them. They've gone after the Baals, and they were worshiping the Baals. And as we uh, begin uh, in this chapter, up to the first nine verses, we're introduced to the children. Now, 10 through 11 is going to be similar to what we went through on Sunday when we got to chapter 5. The very last verse was looking um, into the future and letting us know that God isn't through, even though they've been driven out and they're not going to come back like the southern two tribes. In the last verses, 10 through 11, it says, he says, yet... The number of children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, as we look at 10 through 11, this is a prophecy that God is going to increase the number in Israel. And when it says it will come to pass at the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, 
There it shall be said unto them, You are the sons of the living God. In that day, there will be a great turning to God. God is not through with Israel. We're going to be in Romans in just a little bit. That is clear when you read the entire word of God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. The nation shall shall come together. Uh, There are no ten lost tribes of Israel. And um, and they have they'll have one appointed as one head. Uh, they don't have that today. They are not in agreement with their leadership. The one head referred to here in in uh, Hosea is obviously a reference to the Messiah when he comes back. And I'll tell you what it makes me think of uh, in Ezekiel. Um, oh, what the heck? Let's just go back and go to Ezekiel. 37, and this here, I like to say we're living between the pages. 36 and 37 has been fulfilled, and in chapter 36, basically, we have the the vision of the dry bones and the impossibility of a, a valley of bones coming back together again. Can these bones live it's Ezekiel, and he says, Lord, you know. And he says, well, speak to them. And um, he spoke to the bones, and the bones began to come together, and then sinew, and, and they stood up, and they became a great army. And he says, these bones are the house of Israel, and even though they were dead, I'm going to bring them back to life again. And then there's two parables in Ezekiel 30. Seven. The other one is the sign of the two sticks. And he said, Ezekiel, take two sticks and then put them together. Make them one stick. And that's basically what we just read here in 10 and 11. You're no longer going to have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. One stick over here, the northern ten tribes. One stick over here, the southern two tribes. Put them together and what do you have? One stick. Israel is gathered back into the land. It says when they come, in chapter 35, even though it was desolate, he says, I'm going to make it look like the Garden of Eden. And it's, um, it's agriculture, it's fruit will fill the world. Israel is the fourth largest producer of fruit in the entire world that is no bigger than the state of New Jersey. They have whole kibbutzes that do nothing more than grow Flowers and they send tulips to Holland in the wintertime. And um, they have taken this barren land and turned it into this unbelievably beautiful, uh, technologically advanced country, second to none. There's no country in the world in technology that is second to Israel, including the United States of America. So these last two verses of chapter 1 is a prophecy about them coming together under one head. And um, the fulfillment of this is going to be during the millennial reign. But now that they're back in the land, the Bible says once the Lord brings them back the second time, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 says, when I bring them back again the second time, well, what was the first time? Well, the Babylonian captivity. They brought them back from Babylon after 70 years. 
less than 50,000 came back. They got used to the Babylonian lifestyle. But eventually, under Nehemiah and um, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, um, they rebuilt the walls of the city and the temple. And um, um, the second time is uh, when they came back and are in the land today. And uh, that happened, uh, I say this often, um, it'll be 70 years next year. 70 is an interesting number in the Bible, isn't it? Daniel's 70th week, we read about it a lot. And um, the way things are happening so quickly right now in Israel, the signs are, are clear that the Lord is setting the stage for Ezekiel 38. We can talk a lot about that. But my point here is that when um, 36 and 37, the stage is set for 38 to take place. 38 in Ezekiel hasn't yet happened. But it gives us great detail about the war. And for the first time, the Lord is going to get directly involved with the war. He himself will take care of the army that comes down from the north. And um, he will defend Israel when they're back in the land. So the second time that they're a nation, he says they will never leave the nation again once they're regathered the second time. All right, that brings us to chapter 2. We have the reason for this woman whose name is Gomer, um, why she played the harlot. So let's read the first five verses here that tells us that she was seduced Uh, by material things, basically. Uh, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sister, mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she's not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like the wilderness and and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has done shamefully, for she said, I'm going to go after my lovers, because they gave me bread and water and wool and fine linen and fine oil and my drink. So, the reason is a pretty carnal one, to say the least, that um, um, Israel has gone after the things of the flesh rather than things of the Lord. And so in the first five verses, um, it gives us the reason that uh, Gomer left Hosea, and as a result, there's a therefore. Because he did this thing, the very first word in verse 6 is therefore. And we say this all the time, too. Whenever we say there's a therefore, we have to ask, what's it there for? And what's it there for is the first five verses that we just read. She left because of carnal things. And um, the Lord says, and forgotten all about me. So from verses 6 to 13, we see... Uh, the judgment of God. Therefore, behold, I will hedge your way with thorns and wall her in, 
so that she cannot find her path. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I'll go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. All that God had given to them, they did not acknowledge, neither were they thankful. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and I'll take back my wool and my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will cover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause her myrrh to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. I'll destroy her vines and her fat trees, of which she has said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. So I'll make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself in earrings and jewelry and after and went after her lovers. Then she forgot me, says the Lord. So in, the, in these verses here, you know, it's only a matter of time. Um, the Proverbs say charm is deceitful and beauty is actually a fading thing. And she pursues to go back after her ways and when her lovers aren't responding, you know, there just comes a day when a girl who has become a harlot is no longer beautiful and her lovers lose interest in her and she finally finds herself being put out. This is exactly what was happening to the nation of Israel. The people were saying, well, let's go back to our, our God. But God says that he will judge Israel. And let's just make the personal applications here. If the nation of Israel left their God and went and worshipped other gods and sought the material things first rather than the spiritual things, I think we can make a pretty close association um, with our own nation, um, we become sophisticated to the point that we think homosexuality should, should be considered normal in our society. We don't like to punish murderers anymore. We'd rather accept them into our society. God calls murderers and homosexual sin. He says that when these things be, become prevalent in a nation... And is there anybody here that can't say that these things are prevalent in our nation? We see it every night on the news. Well, it's a sign that the nation is going down the tube. We have too many judges who are um, politically correct and um, uh, refuse to, to take a stand on holding up the law. Basically, they were breaking God's laws and his commandments. Um, and basically, we're doing the same thing today. I think we're in borrowed time. I think we're past borrowed time. I think that, you know, I've said this lots, many times from the pulpit. 
If the Lord doesn't judge the United States of America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Period. And uh, it's really the long-suffering of the Lord. And um, being, being a Christian, uh, who was I talking to today on the phone? I was talking to my little brother. And he, he's really impressed with, with a certain Bible teacher, and, and um, he says he's really solid, so he figured this guy's going to have a really, really big church. He says, how big is your church anyway? He's a pretty well-known speaker. And he says, oh, we got about 200 people. He's, and my brother responded, 200? And he says, well, the fact of the matter is that people are gravitating away from the word of God, and they feel more comfortable in a seeker-sensitive, friendly church than to be going through a book like Hosea that doesn't have anything good to say about the nation. And as we look at our nation today, we don't have a lot to good that we can say about our nation. Good place for an amen. So, you know, I, I call it the Walmart, Walmart effect, if you will, for lack of a better term. There used to be mom-and-pop grocery stores in every corner. I remember growing up in Oshkosh, there was pharmacies. You'd have one, you know, every, every other mile. Well, we don't have that in these days. We have the megastores. And as a result, uh, they can buy things cheaper, and they've driven out the smaller businesses. Well, the same thing is happening in the church. Uh, to go where... You know, uh, there's where we're teaching verse by verse and chapter by chapter. The Bible says the time's going to come where they will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching. They won't endure it. Eh, it's such a downer to read Jose. Sure, you want to do that? Yeah, I'm sure I want to do that. Because if you don't understand Hosea, there's no way the Bible study that we did last Sunday would make any sense. I sort of skipped ahead because I wanted to tie in God's perfect timetable. But you're not going to see God's perfect timetable unless you teach the whole counsel of God. And here's what's going to happen. This is what I see happening. We'll talk about backsliding here in just a little bit. When a church gravitates to become seeker-sensitive and is more interested in numbers and you know, the amount of money that can be brought in on any given Sunday. When that becomes the motive, it's like the church of Ephesus where the Lord says, um, I'm not hanging around because your main reason for meeting is you don't love my word. And the Lord is saying, I'm not staying in a church that doesn't love me first. He says, you got to return. First thing you got to do is repent and you get back to your first love and realize that, that the Lord said to Peter, Peter, do you really love me? He said, then feed my sheep. Well, feed them what? <laughs> well, you feed them the milk of the word as babies. And as they grow and mature, then you give them the meat of the word. And I don't care if you're three weeks old in the Lord, like the church of Thessalonica, or you've been around for 50 years. You're always growing. You're always finding nuggets that you've never seen before. I've been studying this book for a long time. Every time I teach through it, I always find a nugget I never saw before. The deeper you go, the deeper it gets. And it says for the countless ages to come, he's going to be teaching us from this book. We're just scratching the surface, gang. 
So that brings us to um, the, the, the judgment, um, uh, making it up to verse 14, where again a pattern is beginning to emerge that he's not going to have mercy on him, lower hama, no mercy. Uh, but then he jumps again in verse 14 through 23, we find again a restoration of Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and from the valley of Accor as a day of hope. She will sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. And I will take you from the mouth of the names of the Baals. And they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the air and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle, I will... I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. This is the millennium. It's a reference to when the lion lays down with the lamb. And now I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in mercy, in loving kindness and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And it will come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer with grain and new wine and oil. They shall answer Jezreel, and then I will sow for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So even though they're never going to come back, these ten tribes, he's talking about something in the future. Let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans 11, 9, 10, and 11 are absolutely must-reads for understanding God's plan for the nation of Israel. First of all, I've touched on this before, <clears throat> there's no such thing as a dual covenancy. One covenant has passed and the Lord established a new covenant. There are those that are well-known Bible teachers who say just because you're Jewish, God made a covenant unconditionally, and uh, just being a Jew, you're in. Well, if that's true, then Paul would never say this in chapter 9. I tell you the truth, verse 1, I'm not lying my conscience, also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed for Christ from, for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He's looking at Jewish people. And they say, (laughs) and I kiddingly always say this, 
Well, Dylan has a line in the song that says, I ain't, go- I ain't going to hell for nobody. And But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He said, I would do that. He said, if that meant that all of Israel would be saved, then I, let me be accursed. And I like to say I love you guys, <laughs> but, but I'm with Dylan. <laughs> I ain't going to hell for anybody. So what he does, let's go to chapter 11. Oh, go to verse 1 of chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Well, that's clear enough right there that they're not. Then we read chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, if all that's true, that they're not, has God cast away his people? He says, certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleaded with God against Israel? And so, um, verse 5, even so at this present time, there, are, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And Paul is part of that remnant. And remember, the early church, before Cornelius, they were all Jews. They weren't Gentiles. Christians were Jewish. And the, and um, Jesus was their Messiah. And then Cornelius, a centurion, um, only two centurions are mentioned in the scripture, both times in, in a positive. And, um, um, but there will be the elect. There are Jews in the world today that have accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Amir is one of them, who's going to be at our prophecy conference. And there's nobody on the cutting edge more. And I encourage you guys to get on. I'm, I don't do Facebook and I don't do that thing. I am just just don't do it. But if you have it, you can actually watch him on a nightly basis. And he'll tell you what's, what's on the cutting edge. But we're here. Here's one of the most important verses in the Bible. Um, verse 6. And if we're saved by grace, that is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if we're saved by works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and they rest. So uh, this is so important to get down as a believer. It is one or the other. And the two are as far as the east is from the west when it comes to salvation. Either you think you're going to work your way to heaven by, by good works and hope you get in, <laughs> good luck, or it's all grace. But what verse 6 is saying, one is totally the opposite of the other. Either it's grace that you're saved by or it's work that you're saved by. Now, if you're going to do it by works, the Bible says if you've committed one sin, then you're guilty of all of them. Anybody here ever not commit one sin? How about just today? <laughs> you can't even raise your hand just for today, and neither can I. Proverbs hint that on your best day we fall seven times, either in thought, word, or deed. Where we say something we should have, we looked at something we should have, we said something we should have, whatever. There's only one person who can say that. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. He says, I haven't. I've come to fulfill it. Well, what does it mean, fulfill the law? That means live a perfect life. 
where he was tempted in everything, and he failed in nothing. So when it says he came to fulfill the law, that means he came and lived a perfect life. And then one of the greatest scriptures in the world, um, you know, he who, who didn't, he gave us his righteousness and he took upon himself our sins. That's called good news, gang. And it caused us simply to be grateful. All right, let's go back to Hosea. We ended um, chapter 2. Chapter 3 is only five verses long. And I'll draw your attention to verse 4 where it tells us this in the future. Um, The restoration of Gomer, the harlot, to Hosea. Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who looked to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to me, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. And thus I will also be toward to you. Now this had to be <laughs> unbelievable for Hosea to do, to go out gather her back in when she's with her other lovers and bring her home. Because that's what the Lord is going to do for Israel. For the children of Israel shall abide, and I have this underlined, many days. Shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or uh, teraphim. And afterwards the children of Israel shall return Seek the Lord their God and David their king and fear the Lord and his goodness in when? The latter days. Now we've read in the, in the prophets that it appears that David reigns um, upon the earth in the Lord's place as the prince. And he will be the one, of course, it's the Lord who rules over all. But on planet Earth, it looks like uh, he's a vassal king or whatever title you want to put on there. But he is as a role of the king of Israel. So again, many days, how many, many days to the restoration? Well, it's been many days. It's been over 2,000 years. Brings us to chapter 4. And we have um, in the first 11 Verses here, let's just read down and I'll come back and comment on it. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraints. With bloodshed after bloodshed, therefore the land will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or reprove another. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you will stumble in that day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. And I will destroy your mother. 
My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you've forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They shall eat up the sin of my people. They will set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. Uh, For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase. Because they have ceased obeying the Lord, harlotry wine and new wine enslaves their hearts. Basically, the reproof here is committing and breaking the very commandments of the Lord. We say... Uh, as we look at things, there's, there's three things that stick out. Um, first of all, go back to verse 1. It says there's no mercy, and there's no truth, and there's no knowledge of God in the land. And that's really what we're suffering under today. Um, again, I was talking with my brother about this, and uh, the bottom line when he was talking with his friend is that people don't, teach Bible prophecy because most of the pastors don't understand prophecy themselves, so how can they teach the people? And I know I'm being repetitive when I say that, but mainline Protestantism across the board and Roman Catholicism do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation. Now we're talking a majority of people who call themselves Christian and yet they're perishing and getting sucked into and backsliding from where growing up as a kid, you know, nothing was open. And I mean nothing. The streets were bare. Why? Because everybody was in church. And morally, we're light years apart um, from that then. It says they showed no mercy. Back in Leviticus 19, verse 10, there's a law. In the law, and this would have been given to Moses, there's not 10 commandments, there's 613 of them. Here's one of them. He says, now when you glean the vineyard, in other words, when you go out to gather your grapes, um, neither shalt thou gather every grape in the vineyard, thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. In other words, he, he's, um, uh, he's saying this is the way I take care of the poor and you're to do this also. Why? Because the Lord is merciful and he is concerned for the poor. He says, because I am holy, but the people have forgotten this. They have no knowledge of God in the land and they were no longer being merciful or there was a great deal of religion, but no real knowledge of God. Notice they were breaking the Ten Commandments with, with the murdering, um, with bloodshed after bloodshed. And as a result, uh, the Lord um, is holding them, therefore, accountable. Now, in verses 12 through 19, our next section will um, get into... One of the times when I have to correct the New King James because 
Uh, the King James has a better translation of verse 16. So let's read up to the rest of this chapter. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. And they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops. They burn incense on the hills under oak, poplars, terabis, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit adultery and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit adultery, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifice with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. And though you, Israel, do play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not go up to Gilgal, nor go to Beth-Avin. Now, I believe Beth-Avin here is, um, it is, it was, we would call that Bethel today. Nor swear no, saying, as the Lord lives. For Israel is stubborn. Now, if you have the King James, you'll notice that the word there is not stubborn. If you've got a King James, what does it say? Just say it out loud if you have a King James. Backslidden, right? It, said, it should read for Israel is backslidden. The word backslidden is used three times in this book. It's used in scripture only by Jeremiah and Hosea, both of whom spoke to a nation ready to go into captivity. Israel and Judah were guilty of backsliding, guilty of refusing to be led by God and refusing to come to God. Like a stubborn calf, so, I don't know if you've ever tried to load a horse or a, um, a, a cow onto a cattle truck, um, pull them by the rope, and you can lead them for a while, but when they get to that one part where it's going up, they put on the brakes, and they don't want any part of it. And you can push as much as you want to from the rear, but when they lock those front legs, that's, what, that's the example of it, just plain stubbornness. That's all they are, like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forge like a lamb in an open field. Israel is backslidden, but in the sense that they're simply being stubborn. It's not that they don't, um, well, it is. They, they simply, like it says in John, uh, they love the darkness rather than the light. And as a result, uh, they have backslidden. Well, let's just stop and make this personal. How many of you know people that have walked with the Lord for many years, and all of a sudden, they're not plugged in anymore? And uh, all of a sudden, you know they're not walking with the Lord, when at one time, they were fervent with the Lord. Everyone, every one of us here knows that person, type of person. It brings up the whole doctrine of eternal security. And... Um, what does backslidden mean? Well, in this case, it means that you left the boat. Many places in the scripture, um, the Lord purposely puts ifs in the Bible. If you continue, if you overcome. Uh, it, says in Rev- it says in the book of Revelation, if, if you continue, then I, then I won't take your name out of the book of life. 
Well, what is that implying? That it's possible to have your name taken out of the book of life? It is. But then I have to read Romans chapter 8, which under no circumstances says nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, neither height nor depth nor anything. So the way Chuck explains this, this frustrated Pastor Chuck so much that he saw all the ifs, if you continue, if you overcome, and not backslide. Are you in danger of losing your salvation? Well, there will be those who say, if that's the case, then you were never saved in the first place, because that's the only way you can get around it if you're hardcore eternal security. What Chuck always suggested is this. When you're in Romans 8, you preach Romans 8. But when you teach the parable of the sower, and they receive the word, and uh, especially the first two, let's look at the second one. It said, they received the word with joy and and endured until, until the temptation came in and then they, they left the Lord. The first one was stolen. Well, receiving the Lord with joy, my question at that point comes out, well, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so they did, but for a while. But then in time, when it came to actually counting the cost, and this is why when you share salvation with somebody, you better tell them the whole truth. Tell them, are you counting the cost? Do you have any idea what you're getting yourself into? Because the Bible says you've got to deny yourself. You can't be boss anymore. And I remember wrestling with this. I knew full well what it meant to become a Christian. It means I'm not in charge anymore. And I liked being in charge of my own life. I was a free spirit, and I thought, if I give my life to the Lord, that's it. No more traveling for this traveling. Boy, I love to travel. I'll never get to travel again. The Lord must have been laughing out loud when I said that out loud. Because I've been around the world so many times in the last 40 years, and, and he's blessed me with so many trips to India and Haiti and Israel and California twice a year, and I thought I was never going to travel again. Well, traveling used to be fun until they made the airline see it's this big. <laughs> so it's not fun anymore. But, you know, we, we're still, before this year is out, I'll be speaking at a pastor's conference in Omaha. Uh, we'll be in Israel for two weeks. And I'll spend most of November here. Judy and I'll take off for part of December and go to my parents' trailer down in Arizona and um, talk about travel. That's just the rest of this year. And um, I think the Lord has a sense of humor. So Chuck was so frustrated with the doctrine, and he said, here's a good way of looking at it, and that's abiding in the Lord. As long as you're abiding in the vine, as it says, with, 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 without me you can do nothing, but with me you can do all things. So he says, imagine you're on earth and here's heaven. And the only way to get from point A to point B is this boat that's called Jesus Christ. In Noah's days, it was the ark. It was the only way to be saved. And as long as Noah stayed in that ark, everything was fine. But what if he decided to jump ship? (laughs) Well, he didn't, but what if he would have? And so Chuck 
tells the story, he was so mad and frustrated, he took his Bible and he threw it. And he says, this doesn't, I can't reconcile this, Lord. And the Lord spoke clearly to him. He said, Chuck, I never asked you to. I just asked you to believe it. And so as long as you're in the boat, you're fine. What if you decided to get out of the boat? Well, I, I think the Lord purposely leaves that there that we have a good, healthy fear of the Lord, that there is no other name, that we have a good, healthy fear of backsliding and what can happen to a person when they backslide. And I believe that God's ways are way bigger than our ways, and it causes us to have a, a reverence and a rightness. Yes, he's a loving, patient father, but he's also the guy that turned over the money changers' tables in the temple. So I sure got sidetracked there, so let's see if we can find, try to make our way back. Um, let's see, we made it up to verse um, 19? 15? Oh, we need verse 60 with backsliding. That's where we got sidetracked. All right. Uh, for Israel is stubborn. I have the new King James, if you want to put the better wording in there. The word is actually literally backslide. Uh, Ephraim is joined to idols. I'll let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers deliver love, dishonor. Uh, the wind has wrapped her up in its wings and uh, they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifice. Brings us to chapter 5, where we were on Sunday. Now, I began the Bible study on Sunday by saying that the first 14 verses deal with God's judgment on Israel, again, the ten northern tribes. And our text for last Sunday, if you weren't here, I really would um, encourage you to, to get the, the DVDs because our text was chapter 5, verse 15, and then the first two verses of chapter 6, 1, and 2. But let's read the first 14 verses. Um, Hear this, O priest, take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah, and set a, a spread on Tabor, the revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim, Ephraim again is a reference to the ten tribes, and Israel, another way of saying the ten tribes, is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. With their flocks and their herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they won't find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. And they have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Aven. Uh, Beth-Aven again is Bethel. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is sure. 
the prince of Judah, are like those who remove a landmark. And I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. But he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth. Interesting description. And the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one will rescue. This is a reference to what finally happened in 710 B.C. when the Assyrians came in and completely um, took the ten northern tribes out of their land except for a small portion. Now, now this idea of, of moss down in verse... So, um, verse 12, Therefore I'll be to Ephraim like a moth. Well, you know, moths, what moths do, a moth can get into your closet if you don't have mothballs in there, and it can simply, over time, slowly erode and eat that away. And that's what he's liking it to. It should be obvious, as we finish chapter 5, that we've had five chapters with reoccurring phrases. And that is, I'm the one that made you. I love you. And the best way I can describe what you've done for me is to have my prophet here go out and marry a harlot and then have her leave you and go out and play the harlot again and then I'm going to go out come after you again but then she's going to leave again. But in the end, I'm going to have to bring judgment upon her but in the end of all of this, after every chapter, there's this hope. And in closing with our first five chapters tonight, this was our text from last week. And it says here, this goes into the future now. I will return again to my place. The I there is Jesus. And return to my place, we'll be saying it in one of the songs tonight, that the Lord returned to his place, which is heaven. In order to come from some place, you had to have been there before, Right? So the Lord saying, Jesus, I'm going to return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. All of these first five chapters are offenses, plural, harlotry, murder, not caring for the poor. And so it's offenses, but not in verse 15. It's singular. Till they acknowledge their offense. Now on Sunday, I explained this as Jesus... um, In John 1, verse 11, it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was their Messiah. And when the Messiah of Israel came, the one that was promised, one that would be born of a virgin, it was Jesus. And they would not acknowledge him as their Messiah. So that is the offense, singular. What is the one sin of of Israel? that when their Messiah came, they did not acknowledge him as such. 
But then it says, they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will diligently seek me. And the rest of Sunday's study, we went into verses 6, and I'll read them quickly because it ties together. 15 is really a continuation. We're the one that put in uh, chapters and verses. says, the people will then say, but only after they go through a, a period of time of affliction. And this is Revelation 12, when Satan is cast down from heaven, he says he goes to make war with the woman who is Israel. So we read them finally being broken in Jordan, Petra, where they actually say, come, let us return to the Lord. That's another way of saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the last thing that Jesus said to Israel, he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in order for them to get to that place, they had to be broken. And one of my questions to you on Sunday was, how many of you here um, didn't come to Christ until you hit rock bottom, like the prodigal, and came to your senses? Not everybody, but a lot. Sometimes uh, it's the goodness of the Lord, and um, we're told to provoke other people by jealousy. Jealousy, what does that mean? It means that when you're going through a real tough time, that you have perfect peace. And you go, what's up with that? You should be freaking out right now. And you're not. How come? Well, Romans 8.28 says that God is working everything out to the good right now in my life. I don't fully get it all. I have to have faith to believe that. But I believe that. So no matter what I'm going through, God promised to work it out for the good. And that's why I'm cool, calm, and collective. Because I really believe that. And so I looked at uh, people and that um, had the joy of the Lord. They lit up like light bulbs. They had peace that passes understanding they had the joy of the Lord. And the thing is, you do become jealous. And you find out that you've tried everything in the world and you come up empty and short on that. Nothing out there that satisfies. And you, you get it taste of God's love and you go, I think I like this and I'm staying here. (laughs) And so, but many times it's affliction. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn. He will heal us up. He has stricken. He will bind us up. How long? After two days. He will revive us. This is when we went to 2 Peter 3, 8, where it says one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Some people take that out of context and use it out of context, but not here. I can prove that we're talking a thousand years here because when Jesus was here, that's when he said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is you, comes in the name of the Lord. They don't say that for 2,000 years. That's two days. And then it says, and on the third day, we, he will raise us up and will actually live in his sight. Well, when is Israel going to live with the Lord in her sight? Well, for a thousand years during the millennium. So they're, they're not living in his sight now, and they won't be until they call upon him at the end of the tribulation. And when he does, the Lord returns, he establishes his kingdom, and we enter into what's called the kingdom age, or the millennial reign of Christ. How many of you really thought that I'd make it through all five chapters this evening? 
Come on, be honest. Yeah, I know. You didn't believe it. We did. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, there's so much personal application that we can tie in here. Lord, give us that balance in our walk where we have the freedom and liberty that you give us as Christians, but also learning to walk in the fear of the Lord. You tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, just the beginning of wisdom, who you are and how we ought to reverence you and honor you. And Lord, we do. But we're grateful that you look upon your church as your bride and that, Lord, you're long-suffering and um, we're waiting like the five wise virgins for you to come and take us home. In the meantime, Lord, we we pray for our backslidden friends and I pray that tonight's study will be a... Um, incentive for us to realize that we don't want anybody to go through this terrible period of time because uh, you are a God of justice and you will deal with those who are backslidden. So Lord, we just commit the rest of this evening to you and um, pray you go before us the rest of this week and as we continue through Hosea on Sunday morning. In Jesus' name, amen.